Cinephiliac Lounge. I'm Pat O'Connell. And I'm Scott Kilroy. And we're two guys who like movies, and every episode we discuss a movie over a couple of drinks. Today we're discussing Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Scott, want to give us a quick synopsis of the film before we start? Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn is a superhero movie very loosely based on the comic series Birds of Prey. It is the eighth film considered to be part of the DC Extended Universe started with Man of Steel, and in some ways it's the sequel to 2016's Suicide Squad. The film was directed by Kathy Yang and written by Christina Hodgson, and it stars Margot Robbie, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Journey Salmet, Rosie Perez, Chris Messina, Ella J. Bosco, Ali Wong, and Ewan McGregor. The film follows Harley Quinn after she gets dumped by the Joker, since she is no longer the Joker's girlfriend, pretty much all of Gotham's underworld tries to get revenge on her for various misdeeds of the past. Harley Quinn also runs afoul of crime boss Roman Sionis and goes on a series of adventures with a teenage pickpocket in an attempt to return a diamond Sionis has stolen, which is then stolen from him. Eventually, the various players come together to fight Roman Sionis' gang and save the teenage pickpocket from Sionis' wrath. All right. That's good. Okay. Let's start with Scott. Why don't you tell us what you're drinking tonight to discuss this? Sure. I'm drinking Mellow Corn. It's a hipster drink because it's amazingly cheap and it's hard to find. It's 90% corn, aged in used oak barrels, bottled in bond, 100 proof. What are you drinking? I uh, I decided to go with something that would be one fit thematically. And also when it occurred to me, it's something that I haven't had or certainly something I haven't bought since college days. I have chosen for tonight's selection, Wild Turkey 101 bourbon, straight nice. bourbon. I looked up, as I said in my first podcast, which was quite fun. Thanks for those of you who listened. What I said in the first one was that one of the things I want to do is get a little bit better at describing and discussing, critiquing what I'm drinking. So I looked, at, I looked up today very quickly, and one of the things I picked up was to try and note the color, the nose, the scent, the ambrosia, as I called it the last time, the palate, and then the finish. So did you drink your drink yet, or should I, do you want me to do mine first? I've been drinking it. I've been, <laughs> I, uh, it's 9 o'clock, and I started around 6 p.m. So. See, you're doing it right. You're doing it right. I love that. Yes. All right. Well, then I need to catch up. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try and do this the way I taught myself in the 30 seconds that I looked it up online. And I'm going to say that the Wild Turkey 101 looks, I don't know, kind of goldish in the glass. I'm going to go for the nose part. Uh, I guess, I guess it's kind of like sweet caramelly, like bourbon and whiskey normally smells. I'm going to try tasting in here. Oh, it's sweet. I guess maybe like a, a mapley taste. Mm. That's good. I guess the finishes. It's nice and it's nice and spicy, peppery, and 101. It's nice and alcoholy, which is also good, especially since I need to catch up. Yeah, that's one of my favorite bourbons that you got. Oh, very cool. Well, I'm not familiar with mellow corn. You want to tell us a little bit about that? So on the nose. You just get you just get a corn smell. Not a lot going on. A lot of alcohol. That's about it. I'll take a sip. It's good. You get a little vanilla. Believe it or not, you get some plantains, which Ooh. I haven't ever I haven't ever tasted in any alcohol before Plantain. this. Ooh. And a very light oak. Reminds me. The taste kind of reminds me of the smell of cornflakes 
And surprisingly, it's not that alcohol burn considering it's 100 proof. And then the finish is more cornflakes, more corn. Not very, not a lot going on. It's very light. I could see why people get into this because it's just you could just drink it without even thinking about it. That sounds delightful. I, I'm drinking. I'm as I said, I'm trying to catch up. So I was drinking some of my uh, Wild Turkey 101, and I also, I guess, when you brought vanilla, I guess I get that as well here, and it's some um, nice dry finish. Now that we've talked about the finish, let's talk about the beginning, beginning of this film. Or let's actually let's talk about what did you drink when you watched this film? I was drinking Buffalo Trace. Which is my go-to. I love Buffalo Trace. If if Wild Turkey was one of the first bourbons I ever had, Buffalo Trace was the first one that I sought out after I had. Like, I had it, and I was like, I want to have that again. It's funny. I thought about doing Buffalo Trace for this because Gina doesn't tend to like whiskey or bourbon. It's a little too sweet for her, but Buffalo Trace has such a – it's such a dry taste. so good. Yeah, you can't beat a high rye bourbon like that. Yeah, we we should definitely feature that on another show. So, uh, Pat, what were you drinking during the movie? Funny story. I had in my head that I didn't really expect much of this movie. I really didn't. I thought, I was like, man, I'm going to get something that reflects what I think I'm about to watch. So I went out looking for, like, really some shitty malt liquor. Like, I was looking for, like, Country Club, (laughs) Colt 45. And I was like, I can get some really... Georgie vodka, something just really just a $2 for like a liter, something just fucking terrible. But to my surprise, I couldn't, I couldn't find fucking malt liquor. Yeah, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't travel too far, but I did see, and I was like, well, I just, so I wound up going, well, I don't want to just drink a regular old banquet beer. So I, I decided I did Foster's. I did the oil can Foster's. (laughs) Or nice. I was like, well, Margot Robbie. Captain Boomerang to Australia, and so that's what I drank. Nice. I should go back a little bit when we talk about the beginning. Before you discuss the notion, and you're kind enough to ask me if I'd like to join you on this awesome, awesome ride with you, you called me one, one time before that, and you recounted to me how you had fallen into a weird pattern of being obsessively watching Suicide Squad <laughs> and Birds of Prey. And I was like, what? So you, it, could you want to just recap with a summary of if you recall that conversation? I'm like, how did I know at some point you were on it and Virginia was yelling at you about it? So you want to talk slightly about that? Oh, my family thought I had gone insane. Suicide Squad was on almost every night on HBO. Like one of the HBOs had Suicide Squad. And I kept watching it and I became obsessed with it because it's a film that almost works. You, you could, I mean, you have Will Smith, you have Margot Robbie. You have a great cast, and and it's like one of the few roles where Will Smith isn't likable. He's usually the really likable guy. Yeah. And in this, I didn't like him. It just breaks down as a movie. The villain is really weak, and you never really feel like there's any stakes for the characters. And so I kept watching it over and over again because I felt like I was going to learn something from it. And then Birds of Prey came out, and I didn't get as obsessed, but I did watch it a few times. And I had kind of the same feeling. It's just... There's a thing that I've noticed with even good superhero movies that people think we don't have to follow logic because it's a comic book movie. And I don't know if you've ever felt that. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially some, you know, most of the early superhero films tended to, to be that way, where it's just like, it was enough for them to have the costume and to show the origin and the plot or the actual goal of the villain didn't really matter so much. And they didn't just they just didn't understand how that just kind of ruined the movie. So, yeah, that definitely was something that was a problem 
continued to be a problem for certain films. It was certainly was a larger problem with the earlier superhero films or films that were based on, on the pulps or, or comic strip stuff like Phantom and Shadow and stuff. It was just like, oof, complete and total misfires. When you had told me that you were obsessed with, I was like, what? Why, why would you be drawn to this movie? Because, you know, I've, I've watched plenty of superhero movies, bad ones, good ones. Lately, I just like, I just like, I don't know. If someone, if, if I get enough people telling me that I have to watch this, I'm just going to sit this one out. Because back then, we, I would watch everything. Every, every fan, uh, comic fan would watch anything. Because you were, you were just, there was such a dearth of material. You were just starving, just starving. And now there's such, there's so much that unless you get me at the trailer where I think it's really going to be exceptional, I'm in no rush to get to it. So that was the case for those films. But it's funny, when we decided to do this film, I was like, okay. And I asked you if you thought I should watch Suicide Squad because I figured that even though you said it's not really necessary, I felt I watched this, I watched Birds of Prey the first time I watched it and I had, some thoughts about it. And I was like, let me watch Suicide Squad. So I watched Suicide Squad and my, my thinking was the same. I, I was watching, I was expecting, you know, the, the reaction, the, the hate that people have for Suicide Squad is just I mean, really, it's really intense. I mean, I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes, right? So Suicide Squad, which is PG 13, got on Rotten Tomatoes. Most people know, but if you don't, they have two ratings. They have the tomato meter, which is what the critics think. And then you have the audience rating. And they give you two both percentages. Suicide Squad got a 26 out of 100, which is a definite rotten, and 56% audience rating, which is really low because I've seen films that are really just unwatchable get a higher percentage of audience ratings. And Birds of Prey got 78% certified fresh tomato meter and 78% audience reaction. But I looked it up on IMDb, and IMDb gives Suicide Squad a 6 out of 10 and gives Birds of Prey 6.1 out of 10. So the folks at IMDb tend to think that it's somewhat in the same category. No, I was just going to say, I, I watched, you know, I've watched Birds of Prey a number of times, but I hadn't watched it in a while, and I watched it two days ago to get ready for this. By the way, Virginia walked out in the first 10 minutes. She just <laughs> got up and said, I'm done, and just left the room. So I thought that was really telling. I didn't hate it as much as I did the first time. I still didn't like it. I'm not going to say I loved it or anything, but I was like, I don't hate it as much as the first time I saw it, where I really hated it the first time I saw it. And I don't know what was wrong with me for suggesting this film, but <laughs> I think well, I wanted you to suffer a little bit too, to feel well, my pain. Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I should say thank you. I don't know how to react to that. But, um, <laughs> you know, misery loves company, I suppose. I, I have to be honest, though. I had such a weird emotional roller coaster ride trying to look at and evaluate and decide what i thought about these two films because when i watched suicide i watched suicide squad and i said the first time i watched birds of prey the streaming wasn't that great and it wasn't it was kind of soft focused and i was kind of missing details and it kind of looked a little a little more muddled in the streaming but when i watched suicide squad it was it was crisp so i was like well this film you know david dreyer i mean he wrote training day I, I liked Fury that it seemed to be to be able to do action and everybody's individual origin backstory. I thought the di the, the people, there's a lot of good people in it. The dialogue is pretty good so far. I don't know why people hate it. And as I thought, it, you know, it actually looked better than Birds of Prey. I changed my mind after I rewatched a, a better streaming copy of Birds of Prey. But but I was trying to decipher. I'm like, well, I guess what really it breaks down to is that I think people hated or thought that the characters didn't mesh well. I thought that the 
the ensemble cast of all bad people it worked in a way, or at least you got to uh, got a sense of them sort of learning to work together. Not perfect, but I think both films, both films suffer. The real problem that they suffer from is the villains. Now, Suicide Squad, they mostly, they have all these, you have these metahumans and then two people who are just, I think, exceptionally gifted professionals that don't have superhuman powers, Deadshot and, and Captain Boomerang. I thought Rick Flagg was not exactly what I had in mind from the books, the, the casting, but they wound up not fighting other, other villains or other people. They're fighting a globby army of zombie zomboid faceless people for most of it. And then it's like a ghostbusters ending where they're trying to get to the ghostbusters building that has, <laughs> that has this, which I don't, they have this nebulous. I don't quite understand what the, the end, end game is. The witch, the enchantress, witch, who is decides that she hates that the humans don't believe in her and her brother that, that she brought to life through someone else and who could absorb people and become this big CGI globby monster for the rest of the film. They're, they're really pissed off that no one knows them and fears them. So they want to just kill the whole human race. So they have all these magic powers, but the whole plot is that, that she's trying to build some sort of machine. It's like, well, you're a witch. What do you need a machine for? <laughs> That's a good like, point. It, it's like, what? So, with, inherently with this film even though some of the stuff i thought was fine and them having a drink towards the end together i thought it worked uh, it, i didn't think it was as bad as i imagined it would be but ultimately i think that's what it suffers from and re-watching birds of prey i i thought oh it, it looks better than i thought but they also screwed up i think when birds of prey of it's supposed to be gotham city and it's just very obviously downtown los angeles yeah, Gotham is somehow this weird combination of pieces of New York because it looks like they shot a sequence with when Ray Montoya is chasing Harley when she first gets her beloved egg sandwich from Sal. It looks like they're running around downtown Chinatown in, in New York down by like the courts jail right. jail section down there. And I think that part, it seems to be somewhat New York, but then everything else is L.A. So it's just obviously L.A., 80% of the film. So it doesn't, you'd never feel that it's Gotham. Yeah. And that's, I think they they messed up there because in all the Batman stuff, Gotham is a character in itself. Yeah. By the way, I, I put down in my notes while we were, while I was writing this, I, I barely could make this out. Favorite character, the egg sandwich. <laughs> it, it is, it is pretty good. I mean, I don't know that I want, I, I'm a, I'm a cheddar guy myself, not American <laughs> cheese, but if I did, I wouldn't want. American expired American cheese, which is what which is what she says is the secret to it's making it the best egg sandwich ever. But let's uh, let's go let's go to the beginning of Birds of Prey. So we start with this animated sequence and gives her story and kind of and that animated sequence sequence kind of starts off a film that that pretty much shows that all men are horrible. <laughs> Harley's beginning is her father trades her for a six pack of beer as a baby. It's all animated and explains her backstory with the Joker. And then the first live action shot you see is Harley being thrown out of what seems to be a quiet, suburban, modest house. What is the Joker and Harley doing in like some suburban looking house that I was like, why is the Joker? There? Like, that's so bizarre. I, I wondered, it's like, is that, was that a budgetary thing? It's such an odd choice. Yeah, I mean, you'd expect for the Joker, he'd be in an abandoned amusement amusement park or something. But yeah, or some kind of crazy, lavish mansion that they slaughtered the family who did live there. Something. Not some, like, Brady Bunch house. It's so weird. Yeah, it's weird. And, and actually, the one thing that really stood out to me was, I don't know if you've seen 
the Harley Quinn co- cartoon that's on HBO Max. It no, was on DC Nation until that faulted. But that does it tells the similar story, but so much better, where you actually care about the characters. Yeah, no, I haven't seen that. I mean, obviously. I, I was a fan of Harley Quinn. But by the way, I, I think that Margot Robbie does a fantastic job in both films as Harley Quinn. I mean, she really she really nails it. She really shines in that part. And I, I knew that she probably would be fine, but she really is good. But I, I really feel as a, as a nerd, I have to give a shout out to Arlene Sorkin, who was the is she's still with us, the actress who did the voice for harley quinn in the original batman animated series and uh, margot roby's take her voice her, her her accent and the things that she says like putting stuff is straight from arlene sorkin's portrayal voice portrayal of harley quinn yeah i don't have a problem with the actors in either either birds of prey or suicide squad i think the cast was really good in both movies things just didn't come together i mean one of the things that bugged me was okay get i know what you're talking about the animated spot part of the beginning that kind of explains her backstory but then and then they show her getting dumped by the joker but then they show her playing roller derby which i kind of feel like is something that was kind of popular maybe 10 maybe five years ago if we're lucky well i understood i understood where that came from because in the dc new 52 series of harlequin amanda connor and uh, jimmy palmiotti they set up that harlequin moves to coney island and that's also where they get the uh, the stuffed beaver that's in the film that, they, that she carries with them. Oh, right. And she's in a roller derby in that in that series. So I, I actually had come across I'd come across a very interesting article. It was on The Hollywood Reporter from last year. By the way, just to point out this once again, we are talking discussing a film on its anniversary. This film came out February 7th, 2020. So wow, we're, we're discussing almost it. it. Yeah, that's pure coincidence but in a very interesting hollywood reporter article from that time the screenwriter christina hodson she discusses she, she brings up that she did she did a lot of research and she actually points out her biggest influences were the early chuck dixon birds of prey run and also she was she was influenced as i said by the uh, connor and palmiati stuff so that the, she put that stuff into the film okay i could forgive it a lot more that knowing that so you you, yeah. you definitely know the comics world better than i do i just i just assumed it was like someone was like roller derby used to be cool like let's do that well if you didn't know the comics it might seem strange or weird choice i agree i think that after repeated viewings though i might have thought that the screenwriter had hardly become a roller derby girl because that fits well and makes sense for a character that is pretty much carefully set up to be an anachronistic figure she's pretty much a woman that's forced into our modern setting and society for example i would have thought that harley quinn's one room apartment above Doc's Chinese restaurant shows that she's used to living in a different era. She seems to be a a, a girl out of time because she's sitting there, which by the way, I caught, she's got an empty Fleischmann's bottle of vodka with, with her cereal, tutti frutti cereal, whatever, but she's got an old fashioned analog television set with an antenna. And on top of that, she's got Looney Tunes. She's got Porky Pig and another VHS. So she's got VHS and like an old-fashioned TV. You never see her. You see her kick of someone's cell phone into their face, Montoya at some point. But you, you never see Harley use modern devices. And her own apartment seems like it could have been from straight out of 1986. Huh. I did not. Yeah, I, I didn't think of that at the time. But that totally makes sense now. Interesting. So I was going to talk about a couple of things that I think the film lacked. And then a couple of things I liked about the film. The biggest one for me is no Joker. Well, 
you you get him you get him in a traditional Batman animated series outfit in the animated sequence. Yeah, but I just feel like if you're gonna if, if her character's kind of hinged on the way I see it is the Joker breaks up with her, she kind of loses it, and then she learns to stand on her own two feet and in some ways try to you know one up the Joker. But I just kind of felt like they really couldn't get Jared Leto in here for like a day. You know, I, I mean, I, they probably could have, but I, I think it, it was a completely intentional decision. If you're going to do a story about uh, freeing Harley Quinn, because once you bring it, even though one of the reasons why I didn't watch Suicide Squad when it first came out was when I saw the take, his take visually or the film's visual take of the Joker, I was absolutely appalled. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Jared Leto's Joker has damaged tattooed on his fucking forehead like he needs to be reminded how crazy he is every time he looks into the mirror when he brushes his grills i mean how much more obvious can you be than that and even though i softened on it for harley it irritated me that she has rotten tattooed on her jaw it's like really guys let's make sure the cheap seats get this let's, hey if you have a giraffe in there make sure he has a neck tattoo that says long neck or i can <laughs> see your house from here i mean come on Come on. Dina watched it with me and she was enjoying it. She, she had watched, she told me that she had watched pieces of the film like on YouTube. And she's like, it's terrible. She hated it. She hated it with a passion. She's like, it's terrible. Then she watched the film. She's like, you know what? She's like, I actually think when you see Jared Leto with Harley Quinn, it made more sense to her. Going back to what you're saying, I, I didn't mind not having the Joker because once you have the Joker in the film, even if it's a Joker that you may or may not like the take on, but he steals the film. He always takes the film. So he's going to take center stage and it's going to be like, but we want more Joker. If you remove him completely, you make it the girl's film, which is the entire point. I, I always, at some point, I admit it, it made me think of the movie, The Women, where it's, it's all about, it's, it's, it's a movie about women, but it's all about the men. And, and while there are men in this film, this movie is all women, but in a bizarre way, it's all about the men because there's, there's a, there's subtle, there's not so subtle and subtle referencing and symbolism and motifs of the enslavement of women by men. So just by the title of the film, The Emancipation, she needs to be emancipated. Then she, Harley Quinn starts, puts that seed in your head when she tells Dinah at the Black Mass Club when she's drunk, she, she says, a Harlequin's role is to serve an audience, a master. You know, a Harlequin is nothing without a master. And that's this whole idea of enslavement or domination or suppression of women is throughout film. And also, it colors the sexual politics of the entire movie because there is not one man in its film that is good. That's true. <laughs> no, you're totally right. And I think the only way this movie kind of worked, and it was funny that I, I tried to get Virginia to come back in and watch the rest of it, because I was like, the only way this movie works is if you felt, if you view it from like a feminist lens. It's just all the men are horrible in this like all the cops renee montoya when she's in the police station she's the only woman there there are scenes where it's just her and a bunch of kind of greasy looking like schlubby men yeah i mean listen i want to put this out front i'm not offended by this what whatsoever and, and I, I would like to explain a little bit more about it to be perfectly fair most of the men that are in there are are horrible but this is this is where things get fascinating i was telling gina the other day i remember when Thelma and louise came out they made the cover of time magazine because men were up in arms that this was a man bashing man hating movie because it's two women on the run and they kill a man and i i watched the movie and, and i did not understand the problem i was like well what is you know, anything bad that the, those two do to the men those men deserved it a thousand percent here in 2020 where 
no one has an issue with a film where there isn't really there is no no man with any redeeming qualities whatsoever in fact the only person who is not a misogynist because all the men are just straight up misogynists in this film harley's harley's father and you, you get that from the beginning harley's father which also makes no sense. Where's Harley's mother, right. by the way? But Harley's father decides, he, you, you physically see him hand his baby daughter to another hand of some dude with a snake tattoo and seventh, obviously some like not a nice guy. He trades his baby girl. So it, it starts off from the very beginning. This film says that men think that women are property to be bought and sold for a six pack, for a 30 carat diamond. Doesn't matter. They're a commodity. But again, yeah, was, what do I say? Oh, Sal, the only guy that doesn't do that, you'd know very little about. It's Sal, the bodega owner who makes the cheese sandwich that Harley loves so much. But again, he, he's not a, not totally a nice guy because he is feeding his customers six month expired cheese. Right. No, I think on that level, I think the movie actually works. And I wasn't like you. I wasn't. Oh, this is a man bashing movie. I was just like, this is a way I could look at this movie and. It kind of makes sense. Let me go back a little bit. I want to point out that when I say that none of the men have any redeeming qualities and they're all just exploit women and abuse women, the, the film the film has a very cynical take on humanity in general. Because Harlequin, there's a there's not only there's a theme of enslavement and domination, but there's also continuing motif or theme of betrayals. Harley's betrayed by her father. She's betrayed by Mr. J, her lover. She's betrayed by her adopted Taiwanese grandfather who calls her Lotus Flower. Margot Robbie, she really knocks it out of the park for me in this. She really seems genuinely like she just seems crushed. And you know, Harley could have really hurt that old man, but she just she couldn't. She was just so betrayed and it just keeps happening to her. But she also go in turn. Initially, she betrays the little girl, Cassandra Kane, just as well. So both men and women in this film will turn on each other for business. The difference, of course, is that Harley Quinn actually redeems herself. None of the men actually do. No, actually, if you if you think about it, they go they go further down as the film progresses. The guy who played Victor Zazi, and I'm probably mangling that name, Mr. Zaz, Mr. Zaz. That guy was great. <laughs> he was creepy as all hell. Yeah, he was weird. I mean, that that actor I I know is the Doctor Love Interest from the Mindy Project, so it was very weird to see him in that role. I was really thrown off by the two main villains, or the villain uh, Roman Sionis, Ewan McGregor is Roman Sionis, and the actor who portrays I'm forgetting his name at the moment, Masa, Masa, Chris Messina, right? Yeah. You're right. Because when I, my, I looked, okay, I had two separate notes. I had my first viewing notes, and then I had my second viewing notes. And in my first viewing notes, I'm like, the men are terrible. Ewan McGregor, you're better than this. But what are they doing? And at one point, I was like, because when Dinah's, that they make Dinah the, uh, decide that she's going to be the driver because they watch her beat the hell out of a couple of guys, the potential rapist of an incredibly drunk and, and out of her gourd Harlequin. And you knew he was going to be a terrible person because just by that acid wash shirt that he's wearing, the costumes <laughs> in this movie, and so, uh, what, what they what they actually give people to wear, you know, separate of the women, the guys who are just like, interesting choice. Yeah, so the, a lot of the scenes with them, they didn't work for me. And, at, and when, when she comes in and he's like, She's late. Shouldn't she? Shouldn't she be sent home because she's late? Uh, my initial note was like, "What's going on with him?" He's at, it's like Mister Zaz. He's playing him as if the character is mentally challenged. <laughs> I, I'm supposed to be afraid of him. One of the issues I have with the film is, and although the screenwriter has, I read Christina Hudson had she had a reason for the way she structured 
the film, but the jumping back and forth at points and some of the editing is not the greatest. The first time you watch it, I was like, I'm getting whiplash here. Uh, you go up to a point, the nonlinear, I can handle nonlinear, but this, it was, it was really, it was kind of messy. Yeah. The way they handled the nonlinear storytelling. Yeah. And that could work really well for, you know, if you do it right, but this was not done right. It was just confusing as all hell. Yeah. So I, I think I was able to focus on other elements of what was going on in my second viewing because I, I already got over the fact that I was had been annoyed initially with how they were telling the story because there's a point it jumps and it, you know it starts off and Harley Quinn says like it's my story I, I'll tell it the way I fucking want to and the, the 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 screenwriter explained that she was she wanted to tell a story that was nonlinear and unusual because she wanted to tell it from Harley Quinn's point of view and her her voice. And Harlequin is scatterbrained, so the film is scatterbrained. And that, the idea works, and the film it, it rallies. The film has a has a you know it has an entertaining first fine first act. It has the the middle act is the real problem in this film, but it rallies in the third act. But I, I'm jumping around a little bit. No, I'd agree with you. I, I'd agree with that exactly. I think the middle is where it's really just kind of loses the audience. It's just it's just not strong. I wanted to I actually speaking of the screenwriter, I I wanted to I want to go back and just point out a few things that I thought were very very important and interesting that I gleaned from this Hollywood Reporter article. It was uh, by Brian Davids. It was entitled "How Birds of Prey" writer Christina Hudson crafted that hair tie moment. Because apparently that scene where at the end end fight, which is pretty good, they made up for the the sagging middle part with that really starts to kick into gear with the when they actually go to an amusement park and go to the booby trap and have that that fight with Roman Sionis' army, which he tosses Black Canary, Dinah Lance, a hair tie right before they're about to like fight a bunch of dudes, and apparently that became that scene became a moment that went viral on the internet. I don't I don't know, but the screenwriter is of Taiwanese and British descent, and I didn't realize she she's actually been quite a hot commodity for a little bit. She was originally a studio development executive before she turned to screenwriting. Uh, her first movie it was on the uh, 2012 Bat Blacklist. I don't know if you know what that is. No, I don't. Okay, so it's it's this annual list of Hollywood's best-liked but unproduced screenplays. I think she I think she made it onto several of those. But she wrote Bumblebee, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen any of the Transformer films. But she wrote Bumblebee, which apparently was the best-reviewed film of the Transformer franchise. And she was tapped to write a reboot of the 90s Harrison Ford Fugitive, but that hasn't come out yet. And she's, because of Birds of Prey, she's tied to an upcoming Batgirl film, an upcoming Flash movie, and a Pirates of the Caribbean spinoff, both with uh, Margot Robbie. So, huh. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But she, in, in that article, she talks about how it was Margot Robbie's idea. She pitched the idea of trying to do like a team, girl team thing that with Harley, which became Birds of Prey, before Suicide Squad had even come out. And she talks about how like Margot Robbie said to her that, oh, you know, you're scarily, scarily very similar to Harley. Which I guess rings true to me because I think that her best, besides the non-linear, the problems with the non-linear storytelling and some of the editing, the male villains, while she, she understands Harley's voice very well and she writes very well for her, she doesn't really have a handle on on the guys at all. Roman Sionis, you're supposed to be afraid of him, but you're we're afraid of him only because we're told everyone's afraid of him. He, he, he doesn't right. really do anything. Although the one scene where he he sh makes the woman, the guy cut off the woman's dress was a little creepy. Yes, it's creepy, but you don't have to be a crime lord to humiliate someone. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Uh, and he does that. Oh, by the way, 
you bring up that scene I, in my notes. I'm like, <laughs> what was going on with the eye makeup on the men in that scene? They have so like <laughs> him and Zaz have so much eyeliner. It, it was like it's glam band levels. Like they look like raccoons. They have so much eye makeup in that scene. It's ridiculous. But yeah, he, they just do. It's kind of nebulous their their relationship. I'm like, at some point, I was like, are they supposed to be somewhat attracted to each other? You don't really get a sense. Even McGregor's character is Roman Sionis. He's he he just he just kind of says like dicky douchey things. Not very villainous, or he doesn't really do anything on his own. Except he's kind of like you know. There's there's always those super villains that are just petulant children, like spoiled brats, and he's very much that kind of villain. He's just like a spoiled brat villain. Yeah, he has his little tantrums, and he kind of flips out here and there. But yeah, he's not he's not really menacing. And he also, I don't know, I I kept expecting him to be Black Mask more than he was, and I, I don't know if that was like a conscious choice. Like I like the character of Black Mask in the comics. I think he's a really interesting villain. So this was kind of a letdown for me. Going to to the Black Mask, one of the iterations of the character, the Black Mask, his mask, one iteration of the character. He he got he had a mask that got bonded to his face, and that's why he's always the black mask. In another iteration, he has a mask that is outfitted that has like mind control powers. I was like, if he had put that mask and then he had that power, the mind control power to add a little bit more to make him more super villainy rather than just crime lord, that would have that might have elevated the threat for me of him personally. I know he had an army and that and that's fine, but it was just like weird that they didn't do it but and and you know they try to they try to lead up to it i just i guess my point is if you're going to take that long to show him in the mask make it be the mask is something more important than just a mask yeah yeah there should be a payoff to it and there really isn't it's just it's just him and a bunch of goons wearing masks attacking a bunch of women who are just trying to defend themselves basically i mean i get what you're saying i don't i don't think he was a very convincing villain i and i like you and mcgregor a lot i think he's a great actor oh so do i i don't know what i would love to know what he thought of making this movie like if he was just like ah it's a paycheck or if he was having fun or because his character is not that interesting no and his dialogue is it, this is where like Har- harley and harley and even the kid or whatever they have fun dialogue but his stuff is just i don't know if it's sometimes i couldn't decipher was it just is just what was written or was he riffing i hope it was he was just following what was written because some of the there were some scenes where especially when he when he's alone with zaz in his loft that's oh that's another thing i don't quite understand so he's a crime lord right right yet he owns this club which is i I don't own a club so you know i can't (laughs) throw that rock through that plate glass window but so he's this crime lord and he and he has he can command an army of dudes or whatever yet he seems to he seems to be the concierge of his own club the entire time he's checking if he's he's going up to gangbangers like did you have enough heat is everything all fine right. does anyone need drinks over here it's like <laughs> no you can't be a fucking crime lord and be the concierge of your own fucking restaurant it makes no damn sense if, if you come from money and you have all this money and you have a half a million dollars to hire mercenaries to get a 12 year old girl. Why are you living in like this, in, in the, this loft above your club? It, it's just so bizarre. The choice that some, it seems like they saved all the money for the end set because everything else was really like on the cheap and on the fly. It felt. Yeah. It, it did have a kind of low budget feel to it. Yeah, which is kind of different from Suicide Squad, where I think they had a, had a lot more money to play with. Yeah. Yes, definitely. It, it, the scope felt larger. The world felt larger. And this, going back to what I was saying about the uh, screenwriter Christina Hodson, part of my problem, having read 
that she was going for um, non-linear storytelling. It like I, I forgave it, but there are stretches in that sagging middle section where because at some point in the film, Harley when she has Montoya has killed her beloved egg sandwich, and she goes on the she goes on that whole foot chase and and everything, and then she finally gets caught at, by Roman's guys. And she's like, oh, parlay. And then they cut to, they, to Montoya going to the, the police station. Oh, by the way, I wanted to give a, I wanted to give a shout out to Stephen Williams. The fact that the captain from 21 Jump Street is the captain in this really made me chuckle. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was interesting casting. <laughs> and the fact that he's another bastard that, that just like all the other men in this film, like Joker takes credit for Harley's doing and he, he takes credit for whatever Montoya does. They really kind of stretch it out too long because there's once when Harley waves to like, oh, parlay, you know, like I'm caught. That was like 18 minutes into the film. It goes on. It goes on tangents. Then it's like Harley shows up with the like looking like where in the world is Carmen San Diego? And then she opens it up and she's like a Looney Tune character with her, with the bean bag gun rifle and attacks. And then it's like, Oh, wait a minute. I forgot to say this thing. And you go on tangents and then you, then you go on the, the, the you know, you, you touch upon the backstory or origin of the huntress a little bit, which, which happens like three times in the movie where you, they keep going back to her. And also I wanted to, I forgot Daniel Pemberton does the, the music for this. And he did the soundtrack to man from Un- the man from uncle guy Ritchie's film. I don't know if you saw that. I have not. Okay. Really enjoyed that one. He, I loved his score for this and this is fine. The music in this film, I mean, and suicide squad too, the money that they spent for music rights alone. I mean, they have a different cut of music every 45 seconds of like expensive popular music. Yeah, I, I think it wasn't as bad as Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad was like a music video it's at points. Yeah, it was it was crazy. But going back to what I was saying, so you get lost and uh, to the point and then it goes back and then literally 20 minutes later, we're brought back to the same moment of Harley going parlay. And you're like, yo, this is too much. (laughs) (laughs) This is too much. You guys are taking too far. But so now that I knew that Christina Hudson had that idea of it being from her point of view, what I wanted to bring up that I thought was very interesting. They said she wanted to be a street level story and the opposite of the world of the usual superhero fair. But, and they also wanted to be unusual and structurally unusual, unusual. And Margot Robbie and Christina claimed they, that they were loved and inspired by train spotting and true romance. Huh. Because both of which they thought were ensemble, non-traditional storytelling movies, but have traditional three-act structures. Which I thought, okay, I kind of get transpiring. But when I was watching this movie, I watched this movie before I read this article. My notes were like, so is she trying to be a Guy Ritchie film? Because it felt like she was going for like Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels or Snatch jumping around, but messier. (laughs) Yeah, not as good. I know what you're talking about. By the way, uh, just a side note. Have you seen Guy Ritchie's King Arthur movie? I have not. It's really weird. He does all of his typical like jumping around rapid cuts and everything but it's it's medieval times or whatever it doesn't work it doesn't work for that genre it's amazing okay no anyway sorry i have to check it out but the other thing when i was watching the movie initially and i'm like the animated sequence and just how crazy is i would have i would have said guy Ritchie movies or you know natural born killers but they claim it was train spotting or true romance which i don't remember true romance being that that off the top of my head structured it's not like pulp fiction no, no, it's not. Yeah, it, yeah, that's weird. I don't get that. I don't get that either. But whatever. And I've and I've seen I've seen True Romance a lot. Gina and I, that's O'Connell household's 
favorite of true romance. But so, but in any case, uh, Christina Hudson, you got to give it to her. She actually, uh, the other thing I thought was interesting, she got her U.S. citizenship in the midst of doing this film. So I thought that was that was interesting. And the other interesting thing I want to talk about is the director, Kathy Yan. She wrote and directed a film called Dead Pigs in 2018, which I, I have not seen. Seems like quite a bright woman. She attended both Princeton and NYU, and she was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, she's got an interesting resume. I, I, yeah, I, I, I read about her too. I was like, wow, this is, uh, she's no slouch. The other thing I, I thought was a super important and very cool detail, she's the first Asian-American woman to direct a superhero film. So I, I think that's an awesome and significant milestone for the genre, and just want to make sure that despite whatever... We might say what we like or don't like. Have kudos to her and kudos to Christina Hodson because that's quite quite an important thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there was definitely an attempt to make a decent movie here. There were parts that I did not like about it. Uh, I'll I'll totally admit that, but I don't think it was like they were la- it was a lack of effort or talent. Yeah, no, uh, uh, agreed. But um, yeah, so so speaking of thing that there was a lot, even though there was things we didn't like or liked. Let's talk about a few things that we like. I did like some of the characters. There were things in it I liked. I did like Black Canary. I thought she was pretty cool. I liked the way she was introduced. I really liked Huntress because she was just such a weirdo. Um, I <laughs> love the fact that they kept calling her the, the crossbow killer. I thought that was I thought yeah, that was really she funny. Was getting upset. But I'll also tell you where the film totally lost me. The beanbag shootout at the police station. And <laughs> you didn't like that. I just felt like I understand now why Gotham needs a Batman because the cops are just so completely useless that a woman coming in there with a beanbag gun could take the whole place over. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I guess Batman was off shooting another film that day or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I just I get I get they wanted to keep her likable, so probably having her go in there with a machine gun and kill a bunch of people would be again you know, would go against that. But th- it's this is more of the like, oh, it's a comic book movie, so it doesn't have to make sense. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the the police station would doesn't look like any police station I, I've ever seen. Not that I'm being arrested every week or anything, <laughs> but that seemed very much a set to me. But what do I know? Or it seemed very much what I would imagine a, a an L.A. or California police station might look like. It certainly, certainly was no, it was not shot in New York. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> too clean, too organized, too modern. But in any case, that sequence, you know, she goes through that and that's fine with the bean bags. And I guess they, they went with that because they could have fun and be colorful and go with this whole like confetti thing and smoke. But the, the sequence that I want to talk about, so she gets to the, the cell block and the sprinklers go on and then all these all these dudes are pissed at Harley for what she's done, which is which is a running gag in the film is all the grievances that people have against Harley for what she did when she was with the Joker. And, you know, she has a pretty good fight and the music was a little bit lacking in that part. But but the thing that I started to get a little tired in my first viewing was in that sequence, there's a lot of the. I'm going to do some, an action sequence and I'm going to kick you in in slow-mo and you're going to go up in the air in super slow-mo and then you're going to like twirl uh, digitally and then accelerate to regular speed and fall and crumple to the ground. And, and she does that. It happens a lot. And I, I had a note of this would be more effective to me if it was used more sparingly, but that's a minor quibble on that part. One of the cooler sequences I thought was when Harley was in the evidence room and had and the fight in, in the evidence room. Yeah, I, I like that sequence and it came it came right on the heels of the part of the movie I think I hated the most, which I'm just gonna call the beanbag <laughs> sequence. So yeah, why why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because yeah, that 
that worked. That was the thing that was kind of shocking about it was after going through this whole thing of, oh, she's shooting cops with beanbags and they're falling down like they're dead. Then they did an action sequence that actually really worked. When she gets to the evidence room, it really accelerates and getting her, the, the action sequence, the uh, the choreography is pretty good. And when she, one of the things I liked was when she threw the bat. Remember that? Uh, oh, yeah. I like when she threw that. And I, especially as a nerd, when it came back to her, not only was it cool, but when the bat comes back into her hand, she expected it to maybe kind of remind him of like Thor throws his hammer and it comes right back to him. But the thing that follows that, and I think we spoke about this offline was I was kind of shocked uh, just how how much this is this movie is a hard R in its drug depiction. Oh yeah, I mean she's doing she she gets a she gets a boost of energy from the coke being shot up yeah. and like f- kind of floating into and it's it's very it's it's kind of funny because it's very clearly like she's like ooh cocaine and then all of a sudden she has this energy burst. Yeah, I, and then the I forget who which version it was of Black Betty coming in and she yeah she really she. You could see in her eyes light up like, oh, yeah, this is exactly what I needed. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> that was my wife, Gina, sneezing. She was trying to be quiet and she just, she just had to sneeze. But, um, but yeah, going back, hard R. I, I, that also reminds me at the beginning of the movie, speaking of hard R, when you first see her partying at the Black Mass Club, I was, I was shocked. It was almost like the Corova Milk Bar because the first time I watched the, the movie, I couldn't decipher what it was that she she had four shots lined up and there was just this piss yellow. I'm like, what is she drinking? Lemoncello? What the hell? Like that's not that's not very badass to do four shots of lemoncello. You're Harlequin for fuck's sake. But when I saw it the second time and I could actually read what was on the bottom, like, oh, she did four straight up shots of absinthe to start, which that's that's pretty intense. And then then they have the whole sequence, she breaks the driver's legs and she sits down and then you have this this woman come over like cigarette girl kind of circular thing that is just a tray of nondescript obviously whatever it was psychedelic or uppers or downers just a just a selection of pills to take and she takes one and then one of the things that even when i was not liking it as much the first time around i did laugh when she quickly in that same scene has obviously hit a bad place and grabbed some woman's poor woman's purse and pukes green all into it. <laughs> so that was good. But uh, the uh, the other thing I want to point out is having seen this film the second time, I stopped because when she's talking to Dinah Lance and she's telling her the whole thing about like a Harlequin needs a master and all this, you see the that serv- the, one of those those girls with the, the cigarette girls with, that offer you their, the the tray of pills. And it's creepy as fuck because they they don't really show it except for that background scene. They don't show that those girls wear this creepy cloth mask. Well, like these eyes, it's almost like close encounters of the third kind, but with hair. Uh, If you if you go back to it. Oh, weird. I didn't catch that at all. Oh, no, it's super creepy. I mean, why they didn't show that? I don't know, because it is a creepy, creepy little detail. That's in that club that I wouldn't have caught because, you know, club's very small or whatever. But, yeah, check out the servant, that sequence when Harley Quinn is drunk and talking to Dinah at the bar. You do at some point get a glimpse and it's really creepy how they look. Uh, Also creepy and and fitting into what I said about the theme of enslavement or domination. I noticed that all the little at each table, they have a mannequin head, which is obviously a woman's mannequin head. And then the second time I watched it, I I could decipher that all the mannequin heads, which are women, have what seems to be pairs of Roman Sionis' gloves, either 
covering their mouth or their ears or their eyes. So it's just, it's... Wow. Yeah, it's this weird symbolic representation of Sionis's desire to censor, fettering, and controlling what women can see, say, or hear. Wow, that makes it a much, uh, yeah, that's that makes it a much deeper film. Yeah. I did not catch that at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I was shocked. I, I really, you know, going to this film, I, I dismissed this movie or whatever, and you, you brought it up. I'm like, all right, this could be fun. We did a movie that, that we obviously both love. We'll do this movie that we, and, but I, looking at it, I'm like, you know what? This is a little bit richer or an attempt at something much more richer and deeper than I would have ever expected. Yeah, it kind of makes me wish they had, they had done more of that. Like I, I like I feel like it kind of they touched on it, but it was so subtle. I didn't catch a lot of it. Yeah, no. I, I, again, it has problems with the. Unfortunately, the villains. I think at some point, I don't know if I brought up before. The the, the screenwriter said that when it comes to Black Canary. She, she, in that article I discussed, she said, you know, Black Canary's refusal to use her power at the beginning throughout the film with, with Montoya is like, oh, you have a power, you have a power, and she won't use it. She took, she meant it as a metaphorical thing about the fear of using your voice generally. And I, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's too bad that you couldn't apply giving a unique and good voice to the male villains of the film. When it comes to a film, you need a very good villain to go with the heroes and these these guys they they're fine they're okay but if if they had just been a little bit more nuanced or better nuanced because they have zaz has he has a piece of dialogue when he's cutting the keo families he cuts off mr keo's face and then he goes to the wife and i didn't catch it the first time second time i caught it which also goes this creepy little little slip in subliminal thought of like men having the power and being imprisoned Right before he cuts the wife's throat, he whispers, I'll set you free. Which I was like, whoa. I oh, my ca- God. <laughs> yeah. That's creepy as all hell. Yeah. So there's weird things that I picked up on the second time around. And the fact that, in you know, not so obvious or funny, the fact that weird double entendres in the movie. It's her fascination with going to the taco dirty to have tacos. The fact that. The fact that at the end of the movie, all of the women who need emancipation are stuck in the booby trap. It's just, like I said, subtle and not so subtle allusions to that. But then it just has such, Ewan has, Ewan McGregor, again, uh, like I, in both my notes for the first, for the first viewing and the second viewing, I had, I wrote the same thing. I was like, Ewan McGregor, you are better than this. He's just, he's <laughs> so bizarre. In that middle part, when he, when he's upset, the dialogue, some of the dialogue is so bad. When he, he's upset and like Zaz tells him about the crossbow kill, he's like, oh, why don't I own the crossbow guy? I mean, I, I like crossbows. And I'm like, oh, my God, stop it. Or when when he's like showing showing Dinah like masks and he's showing the like the, the creepy shrunken. And it's like, look at those little ears. Like he actually does that. He's like, look at those little ears. It's like, what are you? Do you have? Yeah. It, it's bad it's it's what it's i don't know like it kind of like almost harkens back to something from the early 80s where yeah. i can only assume that cocaine was involved in in the production <laughs> of the film <laughs> you know like something something like you, you could see like Bert, a burt reynolds movie villain saying yeah no definitely definitely yeah so it's just stuff like that or just yeah, it's bizarre. It, what was the other thing that that made me go, "Oh, come on, stop it!" He's like, when they're looking at it, he's like, "Oh, he's a thousand years old, and now he's in an ornament in my living room." Ooh, I love it. It's like, <laughs> what? Ooh, and what do you? Come on, dude. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I kind of would. I, I would love to know what went on in the, in the filming of this movie. Yeah, me too. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. What else? I thought the at the um I thought the the final battle was was the final cl- climactic battle was fun. It was good. They obviously saved all their money for the booby trap set. Right. <laughs> the uh, jumping around and and like that's what I expected. That 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 felt more like a, a Batman animated series finale to an episode to me. Which, by the way, I must say, Batman animated series. I was a hardcore fan when it came out. I and even back then I was like. All the Batman movies or whatever Batman animated series, just they really just they always got it right. <laughs> yeah, they knocked it out of the park. Yeah, so good. But you know, I was concerned when I was watching the movie. I was like, if they don't, if Black Canary doesn't use her power in some way, that's a major disappointment. But I, I gotta say, the the third act, they really rally. They really, they really, they start the female leads. The characters start to gel a little bit better. It starts to feel more organic and funnier and and natural. Like yeah, no, I I think the, I mean I think that's one of the fel- the faults of the film is that they don't get together till the very end. And I I feel like if they had a little more chemistry between them in the beginning, in the even like the middle part of the film, it would have felt more satisfying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's difficult because her, she, it is. Her, I don't know if you know there, there was a comic book series called Gotham City Sirens, okay. and that series was it was the teaming of Harlequin, Poison Ivy, and Catwoman. Now that would have been if you had two. If you had two leads, again, Margot Robbie kills it as Harlequin. She's just she's she's great. If you had two leads that were equally as talented, the movie would have been done gangbusters i can only imagine that that they opted for birds of prey because i i haven't watched i haven't watched most of the dc stuff past i saw the first Zack snyder's superman and i was that's when i was like you know what uh i'm done (laughs) (laughs) i'm good i'm gonna sit the rest of the stuff out and when i saw the trailer and i was talking everyone's excited for the Zack Snyder director's cut of, of Justice League. I haven't seen it. Whatever. But I imagine that they didn't go that route because Catwoman and Poison Ivy are A-lister. Yeah, they want to use them for something else. They want to use them for the, the films. I, so, I, Which I understand. That's great. But I think that and that's why, you know, Harley Quinn steals so much of the spotlight. It, it, it really is. The movie is weird because it's, it's a it's a it's a team movie or it's supposed to be a team movie. But it's really about Harley Quinn and she helps put together a team at the very end. But in any case, I, I thought it, it, it worked. It came together well. And, and, and Roman Sionis, he gets his just desserts and that kid. Oh, speaking of hard R. Between doing pills and enjoying your cocaine when you're getting into uh, fights in a police evidence station with bikers and lighting their beards on fire and getting kicked through car doors. I, I got to say, I was shocked to have that that 12 year old come out and drop F-bombs at the end when, when, when you know, after Zaz was looking to, to cut her open when he put together that that Harlequin was trying to get her shit out the diamond by taking prune juice or whatever. And she just had it. And she just comes out with that gun and she is done. I have not seen a kid talk that way since maybe paper moon. Yeah. That was pretty shocking. I- I'd agree with you there. So yeah, it, again, I felt like it rallied towards the end. I, I could see where um, I could see why audience members were attracted to this more than suicide squad. When you look at everything from beginning to end, it is a more gratifying uh, resolution and climax than the, the uh, suicide squad film. 
Yeah, I think, I think you're right there. It's it's definitely, it, it's better than Suicide Squad for a lot of reasons. And Margot Robbie is really good. She does carry the picture. I mean, she's, she's, I just think, I think she's a really good actress in everything I've seen her in. But I think she portrays Harley Quinn really well. No, I agree. I, um, are, have you, have, are you still, what was it that you were drinking again? Because I'm still drinking my 101 here. Oh, I'm still, I'm down to the end of Mellow Corn. I've got a little bit left. This is a, it's a good choice. Oh, by the way, I wanted to say, I haven't bought well, a, a bottle of wild turkey since my early college days when we, you and I first met and we're doing our own student films. And this is back when I was buying, I started with Jack Daniels and then somehow got to Wild Turkey 101 and would drink it while I was watching laser discs <laughs> uh, of Westerns and James Bond or whatever and would go through it. You know, the bottle now, they really, they really, they really spruced this up. Because when I used to get Wild Turkey 101, it was, it was just, it didn't look like a fancy bottle. This has got a nice little cork top to it. It looks nicer. So kudos to, and, and it could be because I've been drinking a lot of it. Kudos to them with, with their uh, upscaling of their packaging. Well, I could tell you for the opposite of that, if you if you go online and look at what a bottle of mellow corn looks like, you'll laugh. And <laughs> Heaven Hill, the producers of it, have sworn. I read an interview with someone who is involved with the marketing of mellow corn, and he said, we will not change the label. <laughs> and it's been like this since 1943 or something. It's got a barrel. It's got corn on it. It looks really hokey, but it's good stuff. Not as good as uh, Wild Turkey, but fun for a different mix. Cool. Yeah, what else do I want to say? Oh, one last one last thing before I give my final notes. You know, going to the theme of this domination or uh, enslavement women, betrayals and redemption. You have the bird motif where Romans ass constantly call the girls that become the birds of prey birds. And even though Harley has, I can only decipher a Porky Pig VHS, and she's always watching Looney. She's always watching Sylvester and Tweety episodes, from what I could huh. see. So they okay. do fit in some like referencing there. But yeah, despite the fact that uh, it seems that men are not that liked in here, and you know, and we deserve it to be honest, and those guys <laughs> deserve it. Uh, I think it's funny that the the only person that has balls that is that is decent, apparently, is Montoya, as evidenced by the, I shaved my balls for this t-shirt, which did make me laugh when I saw that, when she had to change into uh, yeah. <laughs> the wardrobe from getting garbage thrown on her. So yeah, I just want to say, my, uh, uh, is there anything else that you want to say? I have a few ending thoughts. No, go ahead. I, I just would say, I, like I said, I hated this movie the first time I watched it. I watched it a few more times and it's, I wouldn't say I love it or anything like that, but it's definitely not as bad as I initially thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I don't, I don't need to own this film. I don't need to maybe put it on the library, but I, I will say that going back and forth, I, I was, I was shocked. I, I totally expected to completely hate this film, but I was shocked to find that it, it does have themes and leitmotifs and symbolism and symbolism to the degree that it does. And while it suffers from a ultimately shallow and two dimensional douchey villains with less than memorable dialogue who are mostly told that we're mostly told to fear, you know, we're only shown displays of violence from Zaz in the beginning. And we see him do it to victims that were likely overpowered by a gang of goons beforehand. We don't see him actually get them. And two of them, one was a defenseless woman and the other was a child. But it sometimes is uneven. The middle act has some cringy and not in a good way moments, but it does have some good staging of scenes, plenty of colorful, kinetic and inventive fight scenes. And 
and actually some actual organic good chemistry at the very end and camaraderie between the female leads. The Emancipation of One Harley Quinn is the title, but actually all the major female lead characters that seek and ultimately achieve emancipation from the male dominance and the exploitation that we, we see them deal with throughout the entire film. All the birds set themselves free. All right. You want to talk about next uh, next time's movie? Yeah. Let's see, going back to my college Laserdisc days, one of the things that was in heavy rotation when I was drinking my Wild Turkey 101 was the outlaw Josie Wales. Clint Eastwood film based on Forrest Carter book, 1976. So we're going to be discussing that. And it, as it so happens, it looks seems like it will be on the 45th anniversary. So I'm super excited about that one. Yes, this is one of my favorite films. Uh, I'd say it's in my top 10. Yeah, me too. I, I have a little glimpse into the next. I have a little story that ties into this about Clint Eastwood for the next podcast. Cool. Well, thanks, everyone, for uh, joining with us this time. And I think that's all we got to say, right? Yeah, you can hear our theme music, which means that's all the time for today. Thank you so much for listening for our second podcast. Please visit us at thecinephiliclounge.com. Look for us on, what are we on Instagram again? What are we? <laughs> are we cinephiliac? We are the cinephiliac clown. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Let me... We are the cinephiliac lounge on Instagram. We're also on Twitter. We're on Facebook. And as always, you can go to the cinephiliac lounge.com. Thank you, everyone. All right, see you next time. <laughs>